I'm telling you, something's going on at Orbis. I want to go after Captain. If we can get with him on this Orbis deal. Come on, Ernie, you're never going to get to Captain. He lives in a different world. Developers, architects. With these big money guys at the top, it's all shadows and secret handshakes. That's not us. We're simple men. A fan show about the late, great Lodge 49 TV show, which ran on AMC and now can be viewed in perpetuity on Hulu or Amazon Prime in the UK uh, and bootlegged in other places. This is our season one recap. We're on episode two. Jim, why don't you just quickly give us what uh, what the details for episode two? Episode two, like uh, episode one, was written by Jim Gavin and directed by Randall Einhorn. The title of the episode is Moments of Truth in Service. Awesome. And let me go through the needle drops real quick. This actually, I, after tracking these, they... They usually end up between two and four needle drops per episode. This one may hold the Lodge 49 record for the most. There was one, two, three, four, five, six needle drops, and they were Jack Nietzsche, the Lonely Surfer, the Greg Fote group, Dark is the Sun, Harpsichord, uh, parentheses, Harpsichord Waltz, the Sound Carriers, the official band of Lodge 49 with Lost, Long Highway, Holly Go Lightly, No Hope Bar, White Fence with their song Down, PNX, and Felt, Sunlight Bade, The Golden Glow. I did think I would never see Felt used on an American television show, so that was pretty interesting for music nerds. Those are the details about episode two. But in this week's fourth chair, we have another shared chair. This is uh, one of our super fan editions uh, of our guests. We've got Avery Miller and Eric Plumley. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so we're going to jump right into it. Got a lot to discuss, but first we got to learn a little bit about you, Avery. Tell us a little bit about how. What's your journey to Lodge Forty Nine, where you find yourself on a random Wednesday night recording a fan podcast? Well, I had been recommended it through um, Jim a long time ago. I think maybe a year and a half ago, and. I vividly remember adding it to my Hulu list and then just kind of sat there. I then, I mean, flash forward to 2020, I was quarantining for two weeks and I thought no better way to spend it than to start a new show. And I was instantly hooked and watched the whole thing in about four days. And I wish that four days lasted longer because... You know, I got sucked into the universe and didn't want to let go. And I know this is a podcast, so it's audio, but we do this on Zoom so that we can, you know, see each other and react. And I have to say, Avery, you definitely are throwing down some uh, some Dudley vibes here. You, you got a <laughs> dud look. So uh, we'll have to work your image into the uh, thumbnail for this episode so people can really see. We, I think we found our own Dudley here. It's the first thing I thought, I gotta be honest. (laughs) Well, I got a haircut recently, so it was a lot longer. (laughs) Whoa. Get yourself an artisanal Baja soon. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Well, Avery, we look forward to your uh, r- ruminations and your opinions. Our other guest is Eric Plumley. Plumley, tell us about your journey to the show, which finds you joining the podcast this evening. Sure. But before I do that, uh, now I'm thinking about which character I look like. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, and I, I feel like it, looking at my, my, my picture on the Zoom, I feel like it's a combo of Scott and Ernie. <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's probably just because I'm balding and the light, my, the lighting's not very good. <laughs> but uh, so the way I got into the show is, is I'm buddies with Jim and Bart and Chris, and you guys started doing this podcast. And of course, because I like, you guys, and I miss hanging out with you guys. I wanted to listen to your podcast so I could feel like I was hanging out with you guys. And in order to understand what you guys were talking about, I figured I ought to watch the show. And I'm really glad I did because, uh, one, it you know, gave me an excuse to listen to all, all the episodes you, you'd done um, before you started doing it again. And, uh, and obviously it gave me an excuse to watch the show and I loved it. I immediately liked it. Amy, my wife and I, I wouldn't say we binged it because, you know, we didn't, I can't remember how long it took us to watch all two seasons, but you know, we watched them pretty much uninterrupted until we were done with them and really, really liked them. And I've tried to spread the word about it to, to other people. And some people have liked it, but it's, I guess it must not be a show for everyone. Cause there's plenty of people I've told about it who tried it and couldn't, couldn't do it. I did, We did not have that problem. So uh, I'm always interested in that. What, what was the thing that, what was the barrier that kept the rubes out? You don't asking me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I too slow just couldn't get into it. I don't know. I don't really, I didn't really get into it with why didn't you like it? You know, I, I figured you like it or you don't. We should have a haters round table. <laughs> That's a sound policy. I think. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the sense of humor doesn't appeal to everybody or the tone. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, they, they don't owe me an explanation for why I don't like it. I don't like tons of stuff and I don't really feel like I need to explain myself. So, <laughs> you know, I, I know that I liked it and that's all I really was, you know, cared about. I know she's not here, but who was Amy's favorite character? Your wife. Oof, that's a good question. Don't know if she's, if she, uh, walks in, I'll ask her. Yeah. Yeah. If she, anytime we were recording, if you see her, yell it out and we'll get that answer at, uh, live, uh, from Amy herself. All right. So let's jump into our discussion first. Uh, you know, Plumley, you said something to me when we were kind of talking about the episode via text that not a lot happens in this episode. Um, you know, and then I think Bart and Jim, we were talking a little bit about that. So, uh, be curious to hear what, what you all think are some big moments from, from the episode, which, which largely was a bit of a, a character study. Avery, what was your big moment? My big moment I would say would be Dud finding out that the admission fee is $200 instead of $2,000. You owe me two grand. I never thought you'd show up with all that money. But you took it. I've got a commission check coming. I'm going to pay you back. I was always going to pay you back. I don't want your money, Ernie. Yes, you do. Hmm. Take the money and put it in the lodge. It's my dues for the next 10 years. Are you serious? I want to take the squire oath. 
now. Absolutely. Yeah, why not? We, we can do that next week. And I want a key so I can come inside whenever I need to. I can't give you a key. I want a key, Ernie. And you just looking at his face when he confronts Ernie about it, I think really shows, I don't know, I don't know if it's distrust or cause like he still does put that faith into the lodge after he's like, I'll get you the money. I'll get you the money. He says, no, I'm fully committing to the lodge. I'm putting my mouth where I'm or <laughs> the money where, where my mouth is and I'm sticking to my guns. I just want to be a squire and have a key. And then he's all set. So that's my big moment. Well, I'll jump in and say that was going to be a, a, my big moment as well. It reminded me the way Dud, you know, because Dud's got his own kind of, you know, way of talking and sort of way of thinking and sort of circular. And, and, uh, but it was in that moment in the office with Ernie where he's, he's like, you know, those characters sometimes when they become hypnotized and they like snap in and like repeat whatever line, he's like, no, you will give me the key. I will be a squire by the end of this evening. Like you don't see Dud snap into like clarity of thought and communication mode very often. So that, that was one of my favorite, that was my, my big moment. Uh, my, I was going to say the, uh, the, the pushup contest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how- beautiful Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it sets up the, it sets up that rivalry. It gives you some good Bob. It, it, it gives you a whole nother side of Ernie. And it was the funniest part of the show. And it's the one like, as I, after I watched it and I was thinking about it, that's the scene I kept thinking about. So good. <laughs> I love how they edit it where you don't know who's going to win, even though you obviously know who's going to win, but like the way they edit it, they're like, you know, they're going ahead, you know, at, by the time they cut away from that, uh, they're still matching each other one for one. And you can imagine like the next second Ernie drops. Yeah. And like, there's no hard feet. Ernie has no hard feelings afterwards. And I think <laughs> I, I watched it last night, so I'm, I might not remember it all. But th- when they when they cut to him uh, after it's all over, doesn't he like have his shirt off? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of pulled up and he's rubbing his belly. It almost like looks like he's like a hernia or something is yeah. popping through his stomach. I I just that's what I thought when I saw it. it was like, I love it because he clearly had he has no chance to win, but he didn't hesitate at all to just to just completely go all in on it because he's in a room full of all these like co-workers and these guys he's like i can't not just go you know he, he knew he, he had no chance of winning but he went all in on it, it was so good what does he say those are artificial about about beautiful jeff's biceps those are artificial this is grade <laughs> a man meat or whatever what say? it's kind of in reference to the whatever you know, kind of shitty plumbing that, that uh, beautiful Jeff has been able to sell the cheaper stuff. Right. <laughs> he's like cornered the market on while well, Ernie sells the regular stuff that he's been selling for years. Yeah. That was a great scene. Bart, what was your big moment? Uh, I really like the moment where uh, Liz is uh, cleaning out her fridge and it just kind of becomes this bigger job. And then she kind of just kind of gets lost in it. You know, it's kind of shortly, I think, after she has her meeting at the bank and she's kind of dwelling on how much money she owes. And I, I've said to myself before, you know, if you're stressed, clean something because, you know, like the constant work of it kind of is something that I've done to kind of take my mind off it when it's, there's nothing you can do about that, you know, but you don't want to sit there and dwell on it. You need something that keeps you kind of busy. And I find cleaning to be one of those kinds of things. And, uh, especially the, something like the fridge, I think is one of those things that you kind of ignore for a long time. And then you go to, like open your crisper and it's just enough is enough. And it's just like, you've got to like clean out these rotting 
ginger and radish in the bottom corner. And then you, <laughs> you know, the New next cocktail. thing you know, you're taking out like uh, the shelves and spraying them down and scrubbing it out. I've done that a lot of times, you know, just lots of old food. It's a good way to clear the cobwebs, you know, like I really kind of, that scene always resonated with me. I kind of had forgotten it existed. And then I saw it and I remembered how much I enjoyed it. And then like when she, you know, at some point she just kind of closes the door and sits inside, you know, it's like her, it's like a little kid hiding under the table. Cause it's like a safe spot or something, you know? So I don't know. That was kind of my, my sort of favorite moment of the show of the episode. Yeah. That, uh, it was one of the things I had to maybe talk about in our secrets of the scrolls section, but it also was the first time you see, you know, she goes into the walk-in later. She obviously with the, with the frozen door in the Orbis basement, you know, looking at the Northern lights or whatever. So her as a pathway or a doorway, those cold, cold areas are some portal for Liz for sure. So. And it also introduced, it also introduces one of the great gags of the whole series which is when he's walking in with the huge Costco size thing. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Little do you know that he's gonna, That's going to remain a, you know, <laughs> an appendage for the next uh, two seasons, basically yeah. takes it to Mexico. Right. Yeah. And he and ended, up, and, ended, and ended up taking on whole new, a whole new like meaning in the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Seriously. I kept waiting that, to see, I kept waiting to see during like the early stages of the pandemic, when that was a real concern for people, something from lodge 49 turned into a me, like some scene of Dudley and the toilet paper turned into a meme. I'm sure someone did it. I just never, it, I, it, somehow I'd never uh, wound up in any of my feeds. In the outer limits of Lodge 49 fandom, there definitely was some uh, the toilet paper memes and comments. Good. Jim, round us out. Okay. Uh, my big moment is um, when Ernie calls London and then we meet Jocelyn for the first time. Then that sets into motion. He, you know, we don't know that yet, but he's that he's going to come over and that... Lodge 49 is now on the radar of Lodge 1 and Melanie, Clara, and whoever else is in charge in, in London. So, I like when know. he's like, that, wasn't that the same scene where he says to Ernie, you're one of the most robust, that the Long Beach is one of the most robust memberships in U.S. In North lodges? America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ernie's reaction was like, <laughs> like, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His, his first hint he's not going to egypt sorry i just because it popped in my head again and i forgot about it but one of my favorite moments also is when um the realtor takes someone to look at the pool shop and it's the vape shop guy is this idea <laughs> And Dud just starts pit. You, know, you rarely see Dud. I mean, even when he finds out that Ernie stole two thousand or eighteen hundred from him, you know, he doesn't get as angry as he does that this idea of this guy opening a, a vape shop, and and then he just starts pissing on the inside of the store, and then makes a comment like, "That's what we need, another vape shop." And I, I, I think I've gotten kind of accustomed to it, but I remember when I first saw that, that I just kind of burst out laughing because at the time. You know, the, the vape shops were popping up everywhere, you know, every other corner, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I, I just I love seeing Dud get aggressive. You know, it's it's good to know that he's like he is this lighthearted guy. And he's kind of like 
uh, a tumbleweed to some degree of like going around in life and stuff. But then it is like a, a, you know, a real side to him that is kind of a little bit dark or whatever, as everybody has in them, I think, you know, so it's fun to see those instances pop up, even though they're kind of sparse. I love the way he deals with the realtors. There's a great, um, there's a very, uh, Marxist component to the evil side of the realtors, I think, to the show. You know, and even when he was dealing with Ernie and he found that they'd gotten taken for all that money, he still ended up driving like a pretty hard bargain to get a bunch of stuff out of him. He got the right. key. He got the key, and he he got to rush through the ranks a little bit. And uh, but then he showed his dud, goofy optimism of saying, "Just consider it paid for ten years." Like he knew right then and there, like he was in for life. Right. Plus, I kind of get the. I don't know. Is it a two hundred yearly thing? Yeah. Or is it just two hundred to join? I guess there has to be some money in the kitty. Yeah, I think it's definitely a yearly thing. Uh, going back to the vape shop guy, and then uh, I know how you commented on um, on uh, Dud's angerness towards him, but then we see Liz <laughs> yelling at him in traffic. And we see, you know, like, he got both the, the, both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> the twins, sort of. I, I like that part, too. But Liz gets, like, angry much more frequently than Doug. Yeah, She's much more righteous. Yeah. So what do we think about this idea that done a lot happens in this episode? You know, like, it wasn't a ton of plot advancement, you know? Uh, well, there is plot advancement, but just not, like, through things, ha- more, more setup, right? Just set up four things that are going to be big parts of the plot. Yeah. We meet Jeremy at Sham. We get, yeah. Yeah. We meet Jeremy at Shamrocks. We also meet Ross at, um, the, uh, Temp Temp Joy. We meet all of the, the Shamrocks. Champ, Gerson. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's only episode two. So you kind of get introduced to a bunch of stuff that you hadn't, I guess, but that because, you know, that we'll see later on the rest of the season, season two. Yeah, I feel like you get a lot of good moments with characters. Like when rewatching it, you get so many good moments with those characters that you already know. So like the introduction to all these characters feels so it just feels right for every single character. It's right on the money. Like all of them are who they are right at the beginning. One of the things I think that's because there was a lot of character moments and small things and they had to, I mean, by the time you get to the end of this episode, they've had established about 12 to, you know, 15 characters that are going to pop up. Not even all the characters. Eventually we still don't see lots of characters, but they sort of, everyone's got a bit of a, an entrance. So there, there was a lot of kind of smaller moments. What I'm sort of thinking, what were some of the things that like jumped out at you, you know, this rewatching really helps to sort of like see those small lines or even sort of a, a certain look, what was some of uh, who's got one to start us off? One thing for me was uh, kind of a follow up from last week when we were speculating about what Liz burned in the sink when she starts that fire in the sink. And I hadn't remembered this from before, but she says to that loan officer at the bank, or the loan officer says, didn't you get the letters we sent? And Liz says, no, I burned them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, yeah. no one should say Lodge 49 doesn't solve its mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> I love the casting of the loan officer who goes right through the end of the series. 
Cause she's almost likable. She's almost like, you know, she almost has like a soft spot. I don't know. Like they humanize the loan officer, which I think just makes it even more, it packs even more punch when it's not, when the loan officer is not just like a, you know, faceless robot. She's just like, you know, she's when Liz says to her, so you, when you took out loans to be a loan officer or whatever, and like, you see them like, there's a wash of realization on the loan officer's face, you know? I mean, she's a human being too. Yeah. To me, that's like kind of how, uh, in the system, you know, everybody sort of suffers from it in a sense. Right. So like, she just wants to get, uh, you know, have some security in her life, get a job. She goes to college to get a job, to have some security. And it kind of just is that what it turns out to be is the loan officer. And, you know, maybe she started off, you know, at just a job at the bank. And then eventually they're like, Hey, we have a promotion for you. And the next thing you know, you're the loan officer. And then you have to do those things. And she's not necessarily a bad person, but it is kind of depressing about how uh, soulless of a job it is and how necessary, I guess, in a way. You could totally see Liz being a loan officer, though. That's the funny part, too. You know, like a couple other couple things went a little right with her. She got her, you know, it, it wouldn't be crazy to see Liz as a loan officer. I don't know. She's kind of a loose cannon. She can't really be trusted in those uh, corporate settings, I don't think. I don't think she would last because I think, you know, I mean, her own personal story is of people who are struggling in, in a way. So she, I think it would be hard for her to take that job for long without quitting. Yeah. Free mugs. Yeah. <laughs> two, two free mugs. Yeah. I knew she went back for something, and, but, but I didn't remember what, and I thought she, I, I was like, is she just going to grab the pens too? Is that like, yeah, like, but it? I remember, remembered it that way, but it was, yeah. But I think she, she must take a pen in the future. I, yeah, I think so. Cause I, I remember that too, for some reason. And we see her and Dud drinking out of the mugs in the next scene when they're on the couch watching TV. Mm-hmm. That's right. Watching so the that's my, or something like that. That's one of my small moments is I couldn't tell if what the beer that Dud is drinking in the in Liz's coffee table is Modelo's or if it's like a knockoff, like we don't want to get sued. Right. It's, so like I was like, did that say media? It was something like that. It was it was it was something else starting with an M with the same essentially the same font and logo. I mean, I guys, I got excited because I, I like Modelo's. We drank Modelo's in Long Beach the entire weekend. Remember, that was our beer yeah. choice. So I was like, Modelo. And I'm like, wait, what? And yeah, I thought maybe it said media too. So that was my the generic weird Modelo's, which I was, if I was really nerdy, I'd go and do a screenshot and see if I could identify all the details of the can. But uh, I am not that nerdy. But that was my favorite small moment was the knockoff Modelo's. Avery, what about you? What was your little throwaway small favorite moment? Um, I would say Tom Stone being brought up this early. I guess I didn't really ever think about it until like his interaction with the librarian who also comes back up uh, later when he's married for an episode. <laughs> um, she was going to be yeah. season three. <laughs> But yeah, Tom Stone just, I don't know, it just made me laugh. Um, and then even Ernie listening to it in his car just brings back all that. Yeah, first Paul Giamatti appearance, right? Because he's the audiobook. Yep. That's a good one. I was thinking about Tom Stone myself. And isn't it the next guy behind Dud also checking out Tom Stone? It's like some like yeah. 50 yeah. year old <laughs> white dude. Yeah, that, yeah totally. <laughs> all right, some other small moments. Uh, I really like the uh, opening 
when we see what their life was like before um, it all went to shit. That was very sweet. And it, it, it started, it's kind of cool because it starts off like does in the backyard. You're like, well, I, you know, he's going to get in trouble again. And then you realize it's a flashback. I think my favorite small moment was when we get introduced to Champ. Got this in 81 at the Cuckoo's Nest. I was 13. My older brother snuck me in. We went mad dog in the pit. And then after the show, a couple skinheads jumped us. One of them had a knife. He got me. And my brother lit his ass up with a piece of rebar. It all evens out. So that's Champ. Well, he talks about coming out of the cuckoo's nest in, yeah. in, in the altercation of the skinhead. So it sort of like gives an, even though it's like a 10 second origin story, it tells you like a lot about Champ and his character. If that's what he was doing uh, at that point in his life. And that's where he was hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also noticed that Champ is in the background of um, the temp agency when uh, Doug yeah. goes in there with his, Eyes all red from getting yeah, pepper sprayed. <laughs> yeah. That ends up being a running gag where like other people are often in the background. Whenever somebody, you know, with Liz is going in there, Dud's going in there, like somebody else we know or that we're going to know is, is in the other office. Because yeah, Chance never seems to have any shortage of jobs. He presumably works like just 24 hours a day, right? So that's, <laughs> he's getting the job yeah. at Orbis. So he works sure. as a dishwasher during the day and then the night, you know, Watchmen at Orbis overnight. He just is working twenty four hours a day. I did love Ernie eating popcorn with the dude at the at the warehouse, where they're just sharing that bag of popcorn as they like, yeah. as they like gossip about Captain. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just I'm going to insert a wild card here and say because I, I think we we met Bob in, in episode one, so we didn't meet Bob for the first time, mm-hmm. but. Brian Doyle Murray, he is just gold in every single see, This is the second week he's playing with that weird air <laughs> so water, water thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was like from when we were like nine or whatever. Uh, yeah, you totally know, had that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> in the backseat of the car was when I uh, long trips. <laughs> That's <Church>. it. <laughs> but the handheld one for church. Yeah. <laughs> I love that character. <laughs> But Brian Doyle Murray is, you know, he's a tour de force in this whole series. And this episode is like the first real showcase for him. He's amazing. And I couldn't help but thinking this time when he was sort of presiding over, like he was all fired up about the push-up contest, right? Like he turns the the chair around backwards to sit on it, like to get the better view, even though he's, you know, it's two dudes doing push-ups right in front of him. And all I could think of is him and Caddyshack sort of, you know, he had the two, the two employees who were constantly fighting uh, with Noonan and Denunzio. And now he's got like these two guys under him at, at the plumbing supply place that are just constantly at odds with each other. He's just, he's so good. As you say, like, you know, I, he, Bob always knows this. That's what's so great when he wants to be a poet in season two, that he like, finally wants to like elevate. Cause he's like, if guys like you and I, Ernie, we're losers, you know, we never run in those captain circles, you know, your place. <laughs> Was he say you're so my butter and egg man? Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Is that, I was like, like, I, is that even a compliment? No, I don't. Compliment? Like you, you, you got the staples down. You got the basics. 
<laughs> that is such a great line. <laughs> so you know oh, what his you know what his character's name was in Caddyshack? Not off the top of my head. Lou uh, Lou Loomis. Uh, oh. <laughs> the collective O. I love it. Look at nice. that, that. That gets us That's right it. into the secrets of the scrolls. Yeah. There's your. Uh, what do we call it? Your egg Easter egg. Your, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Egg. What was the name again? L- Lou Loomis, the cat, the, you know, the head, the head, the head caddy at Bushwood. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Wow. Good pull. That does this uh, transition us into the secrets of the scrolls, where we look for little clues, little connections to our universe and universes beyond. So we did a good one there. So you know, someone has to ask Jim Gavin about. Caddyshack at some point if we ever get him on the on the horn again or uh, maybe we'll tweet it at him um, that we made that discovery uh, who's got some more uh, secrets that they deduced I just had one thing that uh, you know we have Dud seeing for the first time the door in the wall that he's going to fall out of at the end of the of season two that's a big one yeah right and he starts to turn the corner and I'm like, Oh snap. He's going to see the door. We're going to see the door, you know, cause he's kind of like walk trying to get into the back. He's kind of walking into that back parking lot and there it is. Boom. Avery, you look chopping at it. Um, yeah, my main one was, I mean, it kind of throws it in your face, the golden ladder that the painting and the bar. And then obviously he's in his old backyard and sees the golden ladder that he climbs up and finds the really the last of his father's possessions since I mean the watch is taken in the pawn shop. The shop is closed. So he doesn't really have anything from his dad other than one cigarette. And I think a lighter or matches are in there. So I mean that was his golden ladder up to his prize, I guess. I imagine that his dad like quit. And so he probably was like, he, you know, you snuck a pack. And then it's, it's like when you've quit and they got a pack, you, you know, you will smoke one a day. And then if you only have one left, you'll let it sit there for three days and then savor it. And I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've quit smoking a few times before. So that's, <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> And then also that parallels with Liz listening to the voicemail from her dad. So that's kind of the last thing she has of him. Lizard, hey. Doug Lee's first trip tomorrow. Thought we could start up the grill, do a little send-off. I know it's a hassle driving up here, but I would love Oh, is that what she's listening to? Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch that. And then I, I, I knew she kind of turns it off. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I was like, I, I was like, shit, I missed what she's, I didn't hear the audio from the phone. Good call. I hate to do this to some degree because I don't want this to turn into Chris's tarot uh, corner, but do it. We did get two new tarot cards introduced. They were stained glass. Uh, they were in, as stained glass panels at the uh, at the lodge. So the first one uh, was the Hanged Man of the Major Arcana. Um, and this time I'm using the interpretation book from my Game of Thrones uh, tarot deck. But, and uh, there is meaning whether it's upright or downward. So the way it's shown was upright. So while the hanged man reveals waiting for a decision or a change in circumstances, he also invites you to take a different view of the situation as you could find an ingenious solution. 
This card also says a sacrifice may be needed to break this uh, stasis and forge ahead. Whatever your decisions, you can move forward enlightened. So that's that's the upright positioning of the hangman. And I'm not exactly sure on the next one, but my best interpretation was it was the queen of cups also in the outright uh, upright position. And they were two panels side by side. Um, as a person, this queen is a sensitive woman of high emotional intelligence who nurtures her relationships. She often symbolizes the ideal friend, a romantic partner applied to a situation. This card shows you're in touch with your emotions and that it is safe to follow your heart and explore your creative potential. You'll also receive the support you need just now. So that was hard to read and not interpret, you know, that as uh, Linda Eman. I can't believe it. What's her, uh, what's her character's name? Connie. Connie. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so I kind of, you know, that one was got giving me strong Connie vibes. And then the other one is that kind of moment of epiphany that Dud has about the lodge itself, you know, like, you know, kind of a bold decision or something that's going to, you know, kind of an ingenious solution to something that might even seem a little bit nutty on the surface. So I'll look for them every week. This one, again, the camera went right to the two panels of stained glass. Uh, so the uh, it's, it's not even that, uh, it's not even that uh, buried. So, um, and I did notice that for season two, um, release a uh, social and digital media design firm did do a series of uh, tarot cards for the main characters. So that is my interpretation of the secrets of the scrolls through the tarot references. So, Chris, is the tarot is the tarot is Chris's tarot corner new to see? Like, you didn't do that for season two, did you? No, because I just noticed that last week they very clearly focused on the fool, um, which is all about the start of a journey and someone who's seen as as silly but actually is has got higher sight and sort of as an introduction to Dud in episode one. So, yeah, it's a new new feature. New feature. Love it. it and I won't make them up if I don't see them. I won't. I won't bring it up. But they're pretty, pretty, pretty clear in the first two episodes. I also like when they went from the two panes of stained glass of the tarot cards. The next shot was the current officer wall. You know, so Ernie and mm-hmm. so kind of transit. So you kind of get that kind. Of, they, they make a nice little like uh, transition there from one image to the next. Also, when Jocelyn is walking down the hall. In London, there's like a million pictures of people on the wall there. So it sort of, you know, underscores like they have a much longer history or more storied history than our Lodge, uh, Lodge 49. There was a, what did you, here's a stuff I'll throw out. Uh, Blaze, when he's talking to Dud about the mysteries, he keeps saying, you know, you know, he, he kind of makes fun of Dud for believing it in a way. What does he say? Theoretical. He, he say Allegorical. Allegorical, right. So this is Lodge 1 in London where Howard Fitzmerald's buried. That's the allegorical picture. Merrill actually painted that one. Right. And he's buried with the Golden Book. The allegorical Golden Book. Yeah, the one he found in the desert with all the secret formulas for alchemy and the universal elixir that can turn, um, that can turn lead into gold. That's the allegorical history yeah but it's sort of weird because it's like you can sometimes you can tell when they don't have the character exactly right because later on you you know 
he would all, he was about the most sort of spiritual or out there interpretations of these things. And here he was the character kind of going, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, but it's also like, it's more symbolic than it is realistic. So it's kind of, I was like, did anyone notice that like, that didn't really seem like the, like blaze of the, you know, of all the episodes. Well, I think when they find that secret room and the dead body or the mummy or whatever he calls it and the, you know, and then the, diary that has you know then he starts being like oh shit this is maybe real or i should be immersing myself more in this mysticism i think that's a good point that's right he there is a moment well i don't want to jump ahead but he after you watch season two and you go back you kind of like blaze is in the very beginning is so um remarkably stable you know, yeah. like his shop is running well, you know, he's tending bar. He's like, you know, he's, he knows he's quick as a whip when it comes to all the rules of the lodge. He's like, everyone else is like, you know, it's whatever. And then blaze is like the first thing you must, you know, he has like, he knows the rules, you know? So he's like the most dedicated lodge person in a sense. And I guess it's after that, um, after he falls for that con artist guy, that's when it kind of, everything starts to unravel. But at this point, he's like very sharp. Yeah, and the con artist man's name is Avery. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I loved how um, Pasquazi. That was such great physical acting when he cuts himself and continues to tell this to tell the story. That was such a great little like sight gag and like you know tells that character like he, he like winces and then you know is dressing the wound as he like misses like half a beat in his storytelling. Uh, but then just like bl- plows right through. He's so good. He is so good. Yeah, yeah he's excellent. Yeah. So Bart, Bart I, I can't remember if you talked about this uh, already, but what do you think of Blaze as a bartender? I like Blaze a lot as a bartender because, well, I, because Blaze takes it very seriously, I think. You know, you can tell yeah. that it's important to him. And I always appreciate somebody who thinks that the bar that they're behind is important. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like uh, tyrants back there, but someone who, but I also, what I really, really hate are bartenders who kind of focus on like their sort of friends or whatever, or, uh, which is usually just like the people who tip them the most or something like that. So like the bartender with like clicks is like the worst kind of bartender in my opinion. So like, I always like, um, someone who kind of pays attention to everybody, you know, I don't know. You got to be very, uh, magnanimous when you're in charge. It's important as a bartender, I think. And I think Blaze is definitely that. I tried desperately to find some hidden meaning in the fact that the pinball machine is the Aztec game. I was wondering um, that too, yeah. But I, I, could, I could uncover nothing. We could continue to chart it, but I just figured it was probably what the props department could get their hand on a, a pinball machine that looked like it was pre-1965. And well, Mooney has... Go ahead. Mooney no. has a big theory about that pinball Oh, he does? He, yeah, I forget what it is because he told it to me back when we, you know, I don't know, back when we first started the podcast. So I can't remember what it what it was, but he is he has something very deeply. Um, he's got like a big, you know, re- you know, whatever theory behind it. All right, we'll have to get I, that from him. Chris Mooney, uh, recording for Pod Forty Nine. Uh, this is about the Aztec pinball and you know, sort of how it, it fascinated me as part of the show from the moment I saw it. You know, Lodge 49 is a show with so much style 
and you know details in the scenes and, and it was that small detail that jumped out to me because you know really the choices that Jim has made are so you know so well made and you know that there's a purpose or a meaning to them so I thought of that as when I saw that first pin when I saw the pinball you know the introduction to the lot is you know it's both kind of dreary and magical and standing out was the, in the you know in the corner with the with its literal bells and whistles was the pinball machine um a Williams Aztec machine. And, you know, the Aztec back glass, the imagery, is of warriors, a priest in feathers, you know, and a sultry reclining female. But, you know, the, it also brings up the idea of, you know, human sacrifice if you really think about, like, what Aztecs were doing in front of pyramids often. Um, and the human sacrifice part of Aztecs was ritual, and it was in part to feed the sun god, and the sun god to the, the Aztecs could be represented by, in mythology, by the phoenix. Um, and the alchemy of the, you know, a phoenix of sacrifice, of transformation, you know, is the key to the lodge. I think Blaze explains it to Doug that Merrill viewed alchemy as a metaphor for the transformation of the soul. You know, in Lodge 49, is full of sacrifices and rebirths. And Dud, to me, is is a phoenix, you know, reborn. He says when he, you know, the snake bit him, he could feel the death in the venom. It was inside of him. And, you know, he obviously survived, but, you know, he, he is looking to be reborn and it seems like he's been transformed by the Lodge. And But the metaphor and symbolism of sacrifice and rebirth and of the phoenix imagery could represent represent so many characters in the show and including you know you know sort of the orbises and the long beaches and the lodge as their own characters you know the aspect pinball also is you know a touchdown for multiple other threads of the show you know the indian tribes that they talk about the conquistadors as knights the lost city of gold and eventually the the trip to mexico by the the cast you know, it, it it might seem an insignificant relic. You know, it's an old machine, but for me, it was a real hook. That the the image of that pinball machine and the hook in the show was, was it hooked me because I love pinball and I love deeper meanings and I really appreciate the level of deal detail that's in the show. You know, all members of the True Lodge. Uh, thank you. The other pinball is out of order, and I can't remember if you can see what what it is or not. I haven't yet. In the rewatch, it looked like they had like a hefty bag over it or something that said yeah. like out of order. <laughs> there another O'Connor's reference. They're like out of order, old like uh, arcade ephemera. Always did remind me of that one corner in our O'Connor's. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe someone, if they want to hit the Google, Google machine, can tell us what year the Aztec pinball machine came out. Plumley, I think you'd be on it. You can get on that one. Oh, you have a pinball I'm- handbook. I got the I got the uh, big pinball book here. I'll I don't do Google machine if I don't have to. <laughs> I just reach for the I just reach for the reference library. Analog right. kid, keep keep going. All right, we'll we'll, we'll keep going. Um, any other little like signs and symbols, hidden doorways that people spotted? Avery, you got one. Yes. So when Larry's laying in his hospital bed and he says, "I thought she was crazy," he I think he's talking about his mother about uh, the true lodge and like yeah. his mom jackie who we get to see 
in my favorite episode, uh, circles, um, talking about the true lodge. And I just thought that that was a really cool callback or call forward, I guess at this point, <laughs> but also we see her, um, face up on the wall too. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same actress too. Yep. It is who may or may not we're working on. It might be one of our fourth Jared guests in the upcoming episode, a little, little sneak peek. Hey, Only do- quickly, quickly, Chris, Aztec debuted November, 1976. Oh, I was off by 11 years. Was it a popular one? Does it give us any other little like uh, important tidbits about the machine? Uh, not in the index, which just had the uh, month and year it debuted, but I'm going to see if I can find any more out about the Aztec while we chit chat. Nice. Avery, that is a great poll. I thought she was crazy. When you watch it the first time and Larry's just crazy, right. Or whatever. But like, now that you know the whole thing, like he's dropping, he's dropping uh, hints and wisdoms. Like every time he opens his mouth, basically. Yeah. Yeah. When he, yeah. When it starts, when he's like, Oh, that kid is coming tomorrow. You got to teach him everything. You know, you know, like the first time you see that you just sort of don't, yeah. You just think he's like someone who is, uh, muttering stuff because they just had a heart attack and, you know, and he kind of always seems to be like on the verge of a heart attack or dying, muttering stuff. And then, yeah, of course, with a couple seasons in, you're like, you know, you go back and see what he's talking about. But I just want to ask you guys, like what you think about, I, I feel like there's something to this and I don't know exactly what, or if it's just kind of, you know, Dud keeps getting injured in the eyes. He got, you know, sprayed with mace or pepper spray in the eyes. He got, kicked in the eye by that same woman. He got punched in the eye by Larry. So his, in these first two episodes, he, he keeps, he's not blinded, but I feel like there's some kind of symbolic blindness going on that like he has to open himself up and start seeing, or I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I think anytime the show, there's anything close to it being something like that. It's probably intentional on some level. Yeah. You know, the next episode, I, I did watch just the beginning of the next episode. It starts with, him being blindfolded, so... Uh-huh. All right. Nice. Good, go. good look forward. Yeah. All right, so Eight. we'll revisit it. We'll revisit that. that the, the, yeah, we got some oh. new ones to, to track. Avery's very good at the uh, at the deep readings of the scrolls. So yeah. good, uh, good, good pulls. Our final segment as we look, uh, as we close the book in our recap of Moments of Truth in Service, the second episode of lodge 49 uh in season one and that is our alchemist of the week all right this is where we look at who in some ways you know drove the plot made a change had an impact in some ways turned lead into gold not an easy one this week sometimes you know we're all battling to pick the same person but uh who's brave enough to step up with their alchemist of the week Avery. So I chose Jeremy, not only because he's one of my favorite characters of all time, but because he thought he was going to have to have a really hard conversation with Liz. This is hard. Okay. um, I've decided to promote Karen to assistant manager. That's fine. Yeah, I know you've been here for a year. She's only been here for three months, but it is all political. Omni HQ likes Karen because she did the calendar. But I told them that you were the best we had in terms of brute labor. Jeremy, seriously, it's fine. I don't want a promotion. Why not? Because the bank will take it. I need to be on tables. I need the cash. And he just goes in for the hug at the end and 
they're not there yet. <laughs> so they event- we eventually get there, but not then. Not yet. And Pip pulling at the hair plugs is your introduction to, to him as a character. <laughs> uh that's a good one that's a good one yeah uh he also he also has the baby that makes the new waitress flee right i mean the baby (laughs) isn't the reason but the baby's the the instigator (laughs) that's a that's a funny scene yeah where she they just watch her it's liz yeah liz scares her off i love that they even set it up in the scene before where she's like, I work here, you know? And she's like, well, what do you yeah. do? Like what, you know, so even like, there's even two scenes where her scaring her. All right. Who's that was a good one, Avery. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll go. I say Ernie. All right. Why? Okay. Just cause we get Ernie at all his best here. We get him in the Cadillac. We get him out in the field selling. We get him on the golf course. We get him in the lodge. We get him, you know, talking about his all natural man meat and throwing <laughs> down in a push up contest. He is no business ever trying to even be in in the first place. It's just like Ernie. This is like this. It's like Ernie at his best all over the place. He was great. He was amazing. That belly is was out of this world. Oh, magnificent. Glorious. Ernie and Jeremy are off the board. Uh, you can also pick them if you want. Um, but who's next for the Alchemist of the Week? And you can tell I am stalling. Uh, I'll go. I have a bit of a stretch, but I was thinking in a weird way of Bert, even though he's not in the actual episode, because Dud's two grand that he borrows from Bert, he gives to Ernie, who Ernie gives back to Bert at the very beginning of the episode. And so he kind of becomes that bank that Dud talks about in episode one, where it's just like this constant kind of circle. Like we give them money, they owe him money, that money goes here to here to here. And we kind of see that sort of happening. And I I think there's something kind of like sadly ironic about Bert lending money that he just then gets back. You know, it's his money literally that goes there and then comes right back to him. But one person is down and one person is up and that changes. And so, you know, I was I was having I was struggling to try to find my alchemist. That's a good that's a that's a good one to pull out of your hat there, struggling for it. Um, and not only does he get his money back, but he's still earning the interest on the money that he now repossesses. <laughs> right, but the interest stops with Ernie and then begins with Dud. So it's yeah. like it's a zero sum game. Just well, changes one person for the other. Not for Bert. It's not a zero sum game. Well, well, right. <laughs> he got the TV. He got, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. He gets yeah. the interest. And but we even though Bert is so Bert's not in the episode at all. I don't remember. No. But his henchman no. is. His Herman. henchman is. Yeah. Yeah. Herman, yeah. And we Herman. and we get the sight gag, the great sight gag of Herman <laughs> on the scooter. <laughs> yeah. The, the long wind out pull away is great. I was definitely like laugh at laughing at that. Dustin right, Ernie, as you asked him about his college ball career, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I've had too many of these conversations. I'm out. <laughs> uh, that's another little piece of Ernie we get, right? The, the failed high school, or the, you know, high school athlete. It was the top of the mountain. All right, Jim, it's a battle between you and I, who's going to go next. Okay. I had a hard time too. And I decided to go with beautiful Jeff who turned a push up contest into a uh, cruise to seat on a cruise. What a lucky that was guy. That's the best I could do. <laughs> yeah. It's not bad. And also, it's the introduction of 
beautiful Jeff is kind right. of a big deal. Yeah, and you know, beautiful Jeff, even though he's he was kind of Ernie's foil, he was still kind of endearing, like in how he handled the whole. He was a good winner. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's a. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, he also gets his comeuppance pretty soon, anyway. But but he wasn't a he wasn't a, he wasn't a dick after he beat Ernie in the push-up contest. No, he's respectfully impressed that he hung exactly. with him as long as he did. For me, so old. Yeah. <laughs> in, in fairness, Ernie is old. Yeah. yeah, in fairness, that's the kind of thing that you get a heart attack and die from if you don't if you're not careful at that age, you know. Certainly or you have a pulled shoulder. I mean, I'm not nearly as old as uh, Ernie, but I, I already for some reason I, I've been playing catch with my kids and I'm like, I don't know when I did it, but I've like I, my shoulder hurts so bad. If I just throw like a tennis ball, just like chucking it, it's like kills. Like I got a, I need rotator, rotator cuff surgery or something. Tommy, I don't know. Need Tom, Tommy John. Tommy John. I need Tommy John. <laughs> and I don't know how I got it. It's just, it's getting old. It sucks. I'm writing a whole sitcom about Bart, the horrible loan collector. Uh, you know, there was lead in line is his uh, bum Tommy John shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Bart, you never did have much of a throwing arm. Yeah. Uh, not in wiffle ball. All right, Chris, uh, the time has right. come. My alchemist of the week is I'm not going to remember. She has a number of names, but, and we do get to meet her and she becomes a character uh, in season two, but the disembodied lodge one voice who basically orders Jocelyn, Clara, right. orders Jocelyn to lot the lodge as the emissary, which starts a whole series of events, which results in Clara's outing as, as the head of Lodge One. So she, in that, sending him to Long Beach sets off a whole string. I mean, you never get you never get Connie's kind of moment of transition by going to London. So there's a whole, like, what is that? Like a, you know, butterfly wings, flaps, a hurricane in the other part of the world. Her just sending Jocelyn to Long Beach sets off a ton of things that end up happening over the course of the two seasons. So Clara in this voice, in this episode, the disembodied voice of lodge one is my alchemist of the week. All right. I love how you obviously you come out of the elevator and the door that you're going in is right in front of you, but you still have to blindfold and walk a numbered steps. It's like, could yeah, be yeah. More ob- it could be more obvious where you're going. <laughs> it, it almost seems like it's one of those things that they said you have to do. And then he does it cause he's Jocelyn and they're like, Oh my God, he's actually doing it. What a clown. But I don't know. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> like 42 steps. Cause he, um, you know, he like, he, he, what I, what I really liked about that was how he kind of, hesitates like well you're gonna send me to lodge the other lodge 49 you know and meanwhile it turns out to be the best decision of his sheltered life you know like but he's so hesitant to do it at that moment yeah he's the big winner of that scene yeah though he doesn't doesn't know it at the time but that's another thing that we're robbed of of no season three is kind of an ending i I don't think that was the last we see of jocelyn when he kind of like when Scott bans him and sends him, I think we would have, I think in season three, you, I think he would have played another role, but we never get a satisfying conclusion to Jocelyn's journey. Yeah. All right. With that, we'll draw a close to this episode. Avery and Eric, Eric and Avery. 
Thank you so much for being our super fans extra chair. Uh, it's good to get some fans in here. We're going to have a different guest every episode for our season one rewatch. It's going to be a mix of super fans, cast and crew, uh, writers, uh, and media types that are fans of the show. We're working on that all the time. So we have some exciting folks for you coming up and we'll see you next week. Say bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you.